Bible reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, and that can be found on page 948 in the Church Bible. A prayer for the Ephesians. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power, through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning uh, to uh, be able to share with you at this time. I don't know, some of you may have been to this particular location. You may have been to uh, the United States at some point. But there is a, a place in the United States known as the Grand Canyon. And uh, in the Grand Canyon, it is, and I've converted this into your uh, your terminology here, about 400 kilometers long and about 16 kilometers across uh, the Grand Canyon is. And people have visited this vast canyon for hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, in the year 1891, there was a writer whose name was Charles Warner, and he set out for the Grand Canyon in a stagecoach. And it was a two-day journey by stagecoach for him to get to the Grand Canyon. And when he and his party neared the canyon, what they did is they stepped out of that stagecoach and they walked the last part of their journey. And as they walked the last part of their journey, they reached the edge of the Grand Canyon. And here's how Warner described what happened when they reached the edge of the canyon. He said, two or three of us reached the edge and one woman threw up her arms and screamed at the sight. We took a few steps and the whole magnificence broke upon us. Nobody could be prepared for this. One person stood in silence, another burst into tears, and I experienced for a moment an indescribable terror of nature, a fear to be alone in such a presence. Now, fast forward from that, about a hundred years or a little bit more, to around the year 2000. And I took a group of youth out to the Grand Canyon and the areas around there and the Painted Desert around there. I took a group of youth out there, and there was one particular youth that spent his entire time playing a video game the entire time on the way. And finally, when we got to one particular place that was exceptionally beautiful, what I did was I I got him, I said, you're going to get out and at least look at this. That's what you're going to do. You're going to look at this at, at least. And so he got out and he looked at it, and here's what he said. We came all this way just to see rocks and dirt. Now, when you think about the contrast between that, you realize that our world has changed over the past century or so. You see, millions of people are still making the journey to the Grand Canyon, 
but I think that very few of them have indescribable terror or silence or tears when they see that. And it's not that the Grand Canyon has changed. It's us that's changed. I think it's partly because we live in a world of rising secularism in which it has stripped the world of a sense of spirit and enchantment and of wonder. I think it's partly because we are deluged with distractions like no generation before us, where we have constant streams of new images and new devices that seem never to end. I remember a couple of decades ago a a comic strip that I saw in which they stood out before the stars and said, our cloud of stars it, it's the, our solar system is on the fringe of this, and we hurl through incomprehensible darkness. In, in, in cosmic terms, we're subatomic particles on a grain of infinite sand on an infinite beach. And then paused and said, I wonder what's on TV now. I think that describes our generation. That describes people today where we are dulled and blinded to authentic wonder and awe. Well, that was from Calvin and Hobbes. There's another Calvin that I would contrast that to, who a few hundred years ago had this to say. He said, the magnificent theater of heaven and earth is filled with numberless wonders, and yet the greater part of humanity walks blindfolded in a theater of glory. You see what he's getting at in that? Everything in all creation points to the glory and the majesty of God. He says says that, and what I want us to do is to start on a journey today toward a recovery of godly wonder and awe. And to do that, I want to take us to that text that was read earlier in which Paul in this letter to the Ephesians says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Now we often hear that and we think of bowing the knees and we think of that in terms of him praying. And that's actually part of what is going on here. But the terminology that is used for him falling to his knees is something that has as much to do with response to surrender to something that is awe-inspiring and wonderful as it does with prayer. He is falling to his knees in wonder and in awe. Now, what is it that sends him to his knees in wonder and in awe? Well, I'm going to leave that as a bit of mystery for a moment. But I will tell you it's something that may seem ordinary. It's something that probably frustrates us at times. And it is something, though, that was so powerful, so wonderful, that it drove Paul to his knees in wonder and in awe. So let's look back in the book of Ephesians, and let's discover by looking back in the book of Ephesians what it is that drove Paul to his knees in wonder and in awe. To understand that, we need to look first at the context in which Paul was writing this letter. In some sense, this book is a true tale of two different temples. One of those temples was the temple in the city of Ephesus. The temple in the city of Ephesus. Now, the temple in the city of Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a temple that was a beautiful structure, 121 pillars. It was a temple that people literally came from hundreds of miles around to see this temple, and they would have festivals each year to the goddess Artemis. And you know, if you've read the book of Acts, how excited and how much they loved their temple, because when Paul began to preach about one God, and people began turning to Jesus Christ, they rioted in the city of Ephesus to defend their temple, but this was not the only temple. 
The other temple that was represented in this church was the temple in Jerusalem. Because Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, was one of the, it was the second largest city in the ancient world. It had a significant Jewish population. A population that at least once every year would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to this temple that, that Herod the Great had renovated and was a towering snow white and gold structure on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now in the city of Ephesus, there were tensions between people from two different temples. You see, to those who were Gentiles, the Jewish religion seemed bizarre and strange because it had no idols. It had no images of their God. Not only that, they had strange food laws and perhaps strangest to many who were Gentiles. Jewish males were circumcised, whereas Greeks and Romans were not. And so you had Jews and Gentiles, these two different groups, and they were in conflict with one another. But what happens when Paul shows up in the city of Ephesus? Paul shows up in the city of Ephesus and begins to preach a good news of a king who has sacrificed himself for the sake of the world, who has been raised from the dead, and through the power of that king sent from God, Jesus Christ, through his power, both Jews and Gentiles can be placed together. And so suddenly, those who had trusted Jesus, they're sharing their lives with one another. They're sharing the same scriptures. They're sharing baptism. They are sharing the same loaf of bread and cup. And that sounds wonderful in the church at Ephesus, except for the fact that Paul had to leave very quickly after that riot that I mentioned earlier. And ten years later, he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus, and things are not all going well at Ephesus Anglican Church. They aren't all going well at that point. There, in fact, there is a lot of conflict in this particular church in Ephesus. And so many of the Jews in the church, they were still keeping the Old Testament laws, which was all well and good for them. But some of them began saying to the Gentiles, if you really love Jesus, you're going to keep all of these laws as well. And then the Jews were saying, no, we're not, we, we, we can't give up this. And the Gentiles were saying uh, that, that Paul just told us to trust in Jesus. And they were having conflict constantly between them over different issues that had divided them previously. And the Jews and the Gentiles were separated from one another, even though they had been brought together by Jesus Christ. And these issues were shattering the church at Ephesus. Now what Paul does is he writes this letter to be able to bind these two groups back together that seem to be breaking apart. And to do that, he uses an imagery that they are very familiar with. He uses the imagery of a temple. Look back just a little bit at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 17. What we read there in Ephesians 2.17, He, that is Jesus, came and preached peace to those of you who were far away and peace to those of you who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father through one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as chief cornerstone. In him the whole building, this is temple language, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you also are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. You see what Paul does here? He says to them, through what Jesus Christ did on the cross, 
You have been bound together, and he begins to use different imageries. He first says you were at once strangers, then you're saints, and then he said you're part of God's household now. God has adopted you as his sons and daughters, and then he moves forward and describes them as a temple. And he says you, both Jews and Gentiles, are being built together into a single temple filled by God's Spirit for the glory of God. He's saying you once worshipped in two different temples, but now God is building one new temple, but it's not a temple made with human hands. The temple that he is making of you is a temple made of flesh and blood and filled with the Spirit. You, the people of God, you are now God's temple. So he's taking people from two different temples and said God has made you in one new temple. And this temple is the church, the visible expression of God's plan for the ages. And do you remember verse 14, when Paul is driven to his knees? What drives Paul to his knees is what God has done and is doing through his church. That's what drives Paul to his knees. In fact, Paul gets so excited about it in chapter 3 and verse 1 that he is incapable of finishing his own sentence. If you were to look at chapter 3 and verse 1, you will see that Paul starts the sentence there that he actually finishes in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of the Gentiles, and then he stops. And he goes off on his, his exalting over what God is doing in his church and doesn't get back to his own sentence until chapter 3 and verse 14, where we read, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family or fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you. And so what we see here is that Paul says, I fall to my knees. When I see what God is doing and has done in his church, I fall to my knees before the Father, from whom every family derives its name, which is a way of saying that every structure of fatherhood and family in our world, no matter how broken or twisted, whatever is good in it, derives from the goodness of God in his creation. And he says, I'm driven to my knees before this God because of what God has done in his church. And then Paul moves at that point from praise to prayer. So if we were to look at verses 16 through 19 in this, chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, what we see is that Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul moves his metaphor once again from family to temple, the temple of all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And he gives a measure, so to speak, of the dimensions of God's temple. And he's all the saints or all God's holy people. That's the measure of God's temple. I want us to, to think about something for a moment. He says all God's holy people. Not some of them, not most of them, but all of them. And no matter who you are and how holy you are or how holy I may be or act as if I am, there are people that we think that our church could do without. 
aren't we? There are people that we say, I think our church could do without that person. I think that the body of Christ could do without that person. But I find it helpful to us as we look at this text to see how Paul says all the saints, all God's people. Do you realize that every one of you who is a believer in Jesus Christ, you are needed in the body of Christ. You're necessary in the body of Christ. God has brought together the right building materials for his temple. And you may feel at times, I don't know if I have a place, I don't know if I have a purpose, but you have been brought together by the master builder who only chooses the right stuff. Now, he did not do that because of anything that you had to offer, but he did that out of his own gracious and sovereign love and will. And he brought you. And therefore, you have a place and you have a purpose and you matter. Verses 20 and 21, toward the end of this, you to hear these words that Paul says at the end, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Now Paul has made in his ministry and in his writings a lot of crazy statements. But I want to suggest that this statement right here in which Paul does this, he declares this, Paul is making here the craziest statement that he has made in all of his writings. And you may think, what's so crazy about to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever? That seems very, very ordinary. I want you to think for a moment with me about the status of the church when Paul wrote these words. Think for a moment about this. Well, the status of the church was as a minority sect in the ancient world, an unpopular minority sect. According to sociologists, there may have been fewer than 8,000 Christians in the entire Roman Empire when Paul wrote these words. Think about this. Fewer, less than 100 of 1% of the entire population of the Roman Empire, no church buildings, no temples, facing persecution that is about to get worse for them. Their top church planter, Paul, is in prison at this time. Within a decade, Peter and Paul will both be dead, and yet Paul says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. The church does not have a future from any human perspective at this time. They are on the wrong side of history. Now, the temple, the, the religion of Artemis, ah, that's a really, that's going to last. That's a lasting religion. Because they've got a temple, right? They've got thousands of adherents. They've got festivals that people flock to for, from all over the world. The religion of Artemis, that's a religion that will last. Judaism, the Jewish temple. That's a temple right there that will last. That temple that's on that mountain in Jerusalem, it is massive and beautiful and well protected. It's going to last. That worship in that temple, that's going to last. Christianity at this time, forever and ever, not a chance. Not a chance for Christianity forever and ever in this context. And yet let's think for just a moment about this. Temple in Ephesus today, there it is. 121 pillars once existed at that temple, towering up high above the city 
of Ephesus near city center. And there it is today, right there. There it is. That's all that's left. Get to the temple in Jerusalem, the situation is even worse. Nothing of that temple remains. Only one western retaining wall from the foundation is all that exists of that temple. But what about the temple that Paul is describing that God is building that drives him to his knees in wonder and awe? What about that one? Well, take a look to your left. Take a look to your right. That temple is right here. And not only that, but as we gather in this place today, there are millions upon millions of other believers who are gathering right now all the way around the world that constitute that temple with us. The temple that God was building in and among and through his people has lasted. Has lasted. Now we may in our various contexts feel like and everything's against us. Everything's against us in our culture. Everything's against us, against the church growing and expanding. But I want to suggest that you look at where Paul was writing, and he says, forever and ever, in which they are a tiny minority of the Roman Empire with not a building, not a structure, nothing. And yet Paul confidently says, forever and ever. And we're still here. We're still here in this place all the way around the world. We're still here. And Paul saw that work of God in the church and it drove him to his knees in awe of what God was doing. Well, very briefly, what does this mean for us in our daily lives today? I want to suggest three things. Because you're God's temple, welcome one another as gifts from God. Remember he says that all the saints are part of God's temple. All the saints are necessary. What that means is is that you look at the people around you, welcome one another as wonderful gifts from God and recognize the trillion tiny decisions and the dark places in your life that you went through that brought you finally here. And recognize that others have been brought here by that same spirit that brought you here and recognize the people in your church matter. Welcome them as gifts. Because you're a temple of God, recognize you need one another. You can't just go around and say, oh, we don't need this brick, we don't need this wall, we don't need this. You're part of God's temple and you matter to one another. You need one another in the people of God. Your church and the people in your church aren't an option that you choose to add to the Christian life if you happen to want to. The church is the visible expression of God's work in the world. And you can't be a Christian alone any more than you can get married alone. It requires us all together. We need one another in the church. And because God himself fills this temple, practice awe when you gather. When you show up at church, you are not merely showing up at at a social club or a social gathering. You are part of an uprising against all the powers of the darkness that strip our souls of wonder and awe. How do we recover that? Practice it when you look around you at the people around you. When you look around you, you're not looking around at mere flesh and blood. You are looking at the temple of God that is filled with His Spirit and is glorious and wonderful. 
That's what you're looking at. You all look like ordinary people to me, and I look like an ordinary person to you, and we are ordinary people, all of us, by any human standard. But when we gather as the people of God, this place is filled and rich with the glory of so be in awe of that. Be in awe of that. Live in awe as you look at one another. And that's how we begin, I believe, to recover wonder and awe in a world that has been stripped of wonder and awe. It's through his church, through his people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time that you grant to us by your grace in which we may have the privilege, and indeed a privilege, of being your people and gathering with you. Enlighten and empower us, each of us, that we may look at the people around us and see your glory, your wonder, and your glory.